Imagine you're a hospital worker, either technician, janitor, doctor, nurse, administrations, you're there. And one day, a patient comes in, a woman, and you realize you've seen her before. Maybe it was that sprained ankle from two weeks ago or the concussion from a month or so back. But you've seen her before. It's a pattern. And this time, things are worse. She's been stabbed. When you ask her, well, how did this happen? How did you get stabbed in the chest? Her response is, I was cutting vegetables and I slipped on my floor and cut myself. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction to hearing that isn't, oh, yeah, I hate when that happens, am I right? Like, (laughs) oh my gosh, right? What a crazy life this is. No, my first reaction is, um, yeah, that is no, I don't really believe that. Plus, based on the history of you being here with all these injuries, hey, is something going on? And though this case might seem obvious, these are the kinds of cases that can slip through the cracks and the kinds of survivors that end up in fatality reports. It's one thing to acknowledge these cases exist and that seemingly obvious examples get overlooked and survivors are killed. But the bigger, more complex question is, what can we do about it? To talk about that, I am bringing in a special guest, Catherine Jacob, the CEO and president of Safe Haven of Tarrant County in Texas. She is a an expert, a leader in her field with over 20 years of experience. And her work especially focuses on the development of early intervention techniques to reduce intimate partner homicides. Spoiler alert, the fatality report that she developed for Safe Haven did a great job, although COVID has thrown a wrench in things. We will cover that, as well as talk about what it's like to coordinate with local DA and law enforcement, especially when you have survivors of color relying on your services, And what goes into a fatality report? It's honestly an incredible conversation. One of my favorites today. And I am thrilled I get to share it with you. That starts now on the DV Discussion. My name is Catherine Jacob. I'm the president and CEO at Safe Haven of Tarrant County. So we um, work in gender-based violence in Tarrant County, Texas, which includes Fort Worth and Arlington. Um, so where the Dallas Cowboys play, that's basically <laughs> where we are, uh, for important, better or for worse. for people to know where that is. <laughs> I mean, some people, you know, um, but yeah, that's what we do. So we provide kind of a really big continuum of service delivery, um, for domestic violence survivors. And then also we are one of the only accredited state accredited, um, groups that provides, um, services for offenders. So that's usually something that happens through the court system. And then finally, we are, uh, we are the lead for what we call coordinated community response. So we have, um, you know, partners throughout our community, thankfully, who are just as dedicated to this 
issue as we are, and they um, really work with us to make sure that we're, we're all kind of in the same train going on in the same direction. So I want, I'm so curious about your fatality report, just everything about it. How did you conceptualize, you know, the concept of this report? how did you put it together? And what was it like working? Because I assume you work with law enforcement, which can be tedious at times, yeah. um, you know, working advocates and law enforcement together. What was that whole process like in conceiving it? So I, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, I would say you know, based on kind of our training and our experience, all of this work is based in relationship building. So um, you don't just kind of ask your district attorney to sit at a table and expect them to share <laughs> things with you, uh, you know, that maybe they wouldn't share publicly, right? Um, so it's taken a long time. We've, we've been a, a group for a long time. So in 2016, uh, I, had a, a new relationship at the time with our newly elected at the time, district attorney, Sharon Wilson. And she and I approached the county commissioners and asked if they would um, kind of recertify a statute that our community have a, an adult fatality review. Um, and then they put um, the district attorney's office, the criminal district attorney's office in charge of making sure that that group happens. So we co-lead the group, Safe Haven uh, completes the, the report and gets the data, uh, puts all the data together. But we, uh, we meet several times a year um, and it, it, the partners are identified in the report, but it basically is like our county hospital, law enforcement, um, our, the, the folks who handle our emergency response for, for healthcare, our ambulance response, the district attorney's office, us, the, the way that it works is that the fatality review is like Las Vegas. <laughs> so when you go through uh, things that your community did well, you also go through things that your community didn't do well uh, and gaps where there are in your system and ways that you can improve. And so sometimes that means that uh, there, it can negatively reflect your own agency, right? So there, there, we've had times in the past where we've looked through some of these cases and said, wow, Safe Haven could have, you know, we really missed the mark this time. Um, and those are hard. And we've had, uh, you know, we had a hospital system who came to, to a fatality review once and it was with tears in, in her eyes that the nurse shared with us that they missed it. They, uh, they had had someone who came in clearly with, with wounds from a domestic violence assault um, and nobody asked about it and nobody made a referral and it, you know, they missed it. Um, and so we all are on the, on the, that pedestal under that spotlight sometimes. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's really important that you have really good relationships because the point of the report is not to expose, uh, an agency or expose a, an organization. The point of the report, uh, we really address three things when we go through these cases. The first is, um, what are the what are any systemic gaps that this case identified? So what locally can we look up, you know, um, in our system where we are where we are missing the mark? The second thing is, are there any policy implications from from this case? So is there anything that we need to advocate for in our local or state or even national legislature um, to stop uh, another homicide happening in the same way? Um, and then the last thing we ask is, what are the practice implications? So 
Um, and, and I specifically am looking at that from a social work perspective, um, but we have attorneys and, and uh, nurses and all kinds of different professions that are in this group. And so we're looking at like, well, how does this impact our practice or the way that we deliver our service? So we've had some, sometimes it's about marketing. Sometimes you're like, we don't know, you know, no one interface with this person. So we need to make sure that our community knows that this service is available, um, that there, there are ways out of this relationship that don't involve someone dying. Um, and sometimes it's, it's a lot deeper than that. Sometimes it's about, um, you know, kind of changing the way that hospitals do business uh, in, in the emergency department, um, making sure that, that everybody is, is screened uh, for domestic violence and that they're kind of given that education. I'm really stuck on the case you mentioned with the, um, the individual with clear marks and nobody said anything, literally no one, no one. How many people do you see in a hospital when you, when you enter? I'm actually, I, mean, I shouldn't be at this point, but I'm still flabbergasted. How did they miss that? Yeah, so it was a really interesting case. This is not from this year's report. This is a prior year. Okay. Um, but the, the woman had come into the emergency department at one of our hospitals. We have a lot of hospitals here. Um, and she had a stab wound, uh, and I think in her shoulder. And uh, when she was asked how she got it, uh, she remarked that she was cutting vegetables and she slipped uh, on her linoleum floor. And no one was like, that's so odd because how are you holding the knife when you're cutting vegetables? You know, I mean, like, nobody like thought that through. And I understand that like, this kind of exposes like, healthcare is busy and um, it takes a certain amount of like time and thought to, to address this. Um, but the other thing is like in her file, this was not her the first time she showed up in this emergency department uh, with an issue. And so she actually came um, just a couple weeks after that um, with a, uh, a broken ankle um, or, or severely sprained ankle. And um, again, you know, nobody kind of looked back and was like, we're just here for a stab wound, um, you know, within the last couple of weeks. So it's, you know, I think that, that sadly is a reflection of, of that hospital, but I think it might be more accurate to describe that as a reflection of healthcare. And maybe even society in general that we are so right. trained to not look for the signs of domestic violence something like that can just fly under the radar, which is... Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that this fatality report really relies on cooperation with local law enforcement officers? It does. So again, the, the name of the game is relationship building. Um, and I don't think in 2016, you know, when we were bringing up cases, I don't think that we would have gotten the amount of like honesty and transparency in that room, in the, the room where we had the fatality review as we did, you know, this, these past few months, it's, it's been years in the making. Um, it, it's, it's moving a battleship. It is um, getting to know the other parts of those systems and uh, listening um, and my friend Scott Miller, who works in Duluth, Minnesota, and leads, you know, coordinated community response, he always talks about how 
coming to the table, you have to understand that every entity is going to have to change. So it's easy to point a finger uh, at, you know, this went badly and you have to do this differently. Like we know that. <laughs> so let's, let's work on that together. Um, and I think you also have to kind of come to the table and say, how can I make your job easier? Cause I know that law enforcement gets frustrated with advocates also, you know? Um, so right now we're having conversations around things like assessment of primary aggressor and, um, you know, victims still in 2020 are arrested on scene. <laughs> so how can we, you know, how do we change why that happens um, to, to make sure that it doesn't? I will say locally, um, there are advocates who do work with police officers. However, we still see this gap because advocates claim they have this training to help protect survivors who are still being, like you said, arrested on scene, and yet it still happens. So gaps like those, do you think they come from just a lack of communication, an unwillingness from the police department to enforce this, to tr properly train their officers, or just the fact that advocates can't be everywhere at once and talk to every officer and change the culture? Well, I, I think it's twofold. I think part of it is we expect police officers to be all things to all people. We want them to be mental health professionals. We want them to be IPV professionals. We want them to be, um, to keep us safe. We want them to um, make sure that they do community policing, you know, community integration. We want them to, to I, I think it's unrealistic. <laughs> so yes, we want them to be bus drivers. We want them to also- right. Right. You're at I it. want them to be a psych hospital. Like they're not. Um, so there's that. But I think on the on the IPV front specifically, you know, the way that um, that policing works is police show up to on scene, and there is someone who it's possible there's someone who has clear visible injuries, and there's someone who doesn't. And if you know anything about IPV. If, if the survivor has used what we call resistive violence, um, she is the first one to admit that when, when police come on scene. You know, an offender, a, a, a traditional offender who has issues with power and control will not admit <laughs> that they've done anything on scene. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to explain that to the police. Like when you show up, what they see is they see probable cause they see wounds and they have someone who's confessing. So by like, by their standards, yeah. Right, like, you know, and fortunately in our system here in Tarrant County, we're to the point where, you know, those cases don't go very far. Um, that said, it's, it's too far as it is because an offender sitting there, like I got away with it, Mm. she got arrested she caused it anyway you know um so it's t I, I can see why from the police perspective they're like here's here's the checklist that someone has to meet to get arrested and they've met the checklist so I'm going to arrest them like just gonna jump in here really quickly dealing with the police as an advocate is ugh, it's difficult for me when I was younger, I wanted to be a cop. Don't worry, I have since learned my lesson. I know better now. But I had many family members who were police officers and family friends who are currently police officers. And 
good people who understood my trauma as a survivor. However, I don't really approve of the job the police have done as a whole. And I admit, yes, this comes from the privilege of being Asian American, Chinese American, which I morbidly joke means I am more likely to be laughed at than shot at while driving. So I don't come from the perspective of I've always been afraid of the police. And I acknowledge that this is a really nuanced topic. And there are people, especially women of color, spouse of color, who are listening going, oh, hell no, no police, no ever police. No, 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 no. And, you know, I recognize that this is a completely valid point of view. And even as someone who grew up, you know, accepting the police for the most part, I, mm, this is a hard one for me. Because within the current system, logically, yes, we should work with the police, but I have seen so many examples where it feels like the police do not care. For example, about a year and a half ago, I was speaking to a local police officer. It was actually the husband of one of my, uh, a co-worker. Sorry about that. And I was talking about why don't police do a better job with domestic violence incidences? Why don't they do more to investigate so you don't arrest survivors by accident? And I got a really unsatisfactory at best response about, well, what do you expect us to do in the case of emotional abuse? Do you want us to like call everyone and like take all that time? And I'm just thinking, oh, you mean do your job and investigate? Huh, what a novel idea. On the other hand, I can completely see Ms. Jacobs' point of view with this is the hand we've been dealt and the system we have to work within. And especially when we're looking at reducing homicide, well, who responds to homicide reports, who has the data, who keeps track of trends, the police. So we got to work with them. And, you know, arguably this is when we see the importance of building relationships and building trust and not necessarily calling them out as you guys are the worst thing ever and you only are the worst thing ever, although some people would argue that. It's more so here are the flaws and here's how we can work together and build that trust and hopefully create in the future a police force that survivors, all survivors, regardless of their background, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, white, Chinese, whether you're a person of color, whether you're indigenous, can come forward. I know it feels impossible considering the history of the police force is really, really racist, but I guess step one is building that trust, and it is programs like these that will hopefully start to bridge that gap. Okay, anyways, back to our conversation. And would you say that this is very similar to our overworked healthcare system, like the example earlier, where they're like, well, if the shoe fits, simplest solution here, you know, don't have the cultural background to look past the initial scene to kind of see the underlying indicators of domestic violence, therefore, and then it plays out. I'm going to treat the thing. You have a stab wound. We're going to stitch you up. Yeah. And get you out of here because I only have 15 minutes with you. And you waited four hours in an EV for this time. Um, you don't have insurance. And we're, we're going to move through this as fast as possible. Like we can't get invested. Jumping in here yet again, I've actually seen this in action, especially when I was speaking with local firefighters. Um, 
before the pandemic hit. A lot of them who I would talk to talked about, yeah, you just get blinders on, you just go in, bing, bang, boom, you patch up the bleeding, then you take off, you don't really spend time investigating. And a lot of them were actually, you know, against the idea that, oh, no, we don't ask questions in any way because that's the job of the police. There were some who disagreed, but there were a lot who just said, not our job, and just punted that football right over the fence. And, you know, I would imagine this kind of applies to other professions where you would think that they would be a little more aware and hope that they would step in if needed. Okay, that's it for now. And just so my viewers, um, listener, I don't know why I always, I keep saying viewers every single time. <laughs> Just the way the Zoom. Uh, the Zoom. I, I, I know, right? <laughs> it, it messes me up. Uh, can you please define resistive violence really quickly, just so my listeners, you know, just have it in their head what it is? I mean, we're basically talking about layman's term self-defense, right? Um, although resistive violence can also um, include, a, from a social work perspective, um, it can also include um, you know, a, a survivor uh lashing out because of pervasive abuse that has happened to them by this person. So it doesn't necessarily have to be right then in a self-defense situation. It can also be um, kind of the culmination, you know, the result of the culmination of, of, of a violent relationship. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've had, we've done focus groups in shelter and, and with survivors for a long time. And one of the things that um, I remember is we had a survivor who said, um, you're suicidal until you're homicidal. Um, and when we asked her about that, she said, uh, I knew that only one of us was going to get out of this relationship alive. And at one point, I mean, she didn't end up killing her partner, but she said at one point, I thought to myself, I'll be damned if, if it's not me, uh, who's going to get out of this alive. So, um, that was really powerful. Like, I think there's a lot of, um, research and work to be done around the issue of victims who fight back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a whole season all on its own. So when I get there, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I have to ask, because there is such a heavy emphasis on partnering with law enforcement, how is that relationship been challenged this year with the rise, you know, of public awareness about police violence around like African American communities, people of color, trans communities, and how has that been challenged and changed? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, as as a white woman who is leading, you know, this effort here in Tarrant County, it's things are new to me that are not new to my black sisters who've been dealing with this for a long time. So um, I think just because I'm aware of this now does not, or, or, or more aware of it or more heightened now does not mean that it's, it's new to everybody because I would, we have a very diverse staff um, and this, the, the black staff that we have have said, you know, welcome, welcome to our world. Like <laughs> we, you do, you have finally arrived. Um, and I can hear that. Um, we did some focus groups over the summer and we had one case, um, it was a, a black mother um, who had a, uh, had, had three 
three or four children, but the oldest one was a teenage boy. And when the, when she called the police finally, which all of our black survivors and focus groups have said, I'm not calling the police. Like all, a lot of survivors say that anyway, because it's DV and they don't think they're going to be supported um, with a domestic. There's this added layer of systemic bias uh, and institutional racism that, that, um, you know, we've heard from our black clients who have said, you know, I'm not, I'm not. If, you know, it would have to be a real, real pickle that I was in uh, for me to call police. And often it's someone else who's calling them when it's a neighbor um, or a bystander in some way. Um, and so, uh, but this, this one case, the, the woman, uh, the woman called herself, she called 911. She said, my, you know, my husband or is, is being violent and need help police show up and they immediately, um, attempt to arrest her son, her 17 year old son. And the idea that you need this help, you're already in, you're already experiencing trauma. And now you're, it, that crosses a line that you have to protect your child. Um, and yeah. the, the, yeah. I think it's, and, and I think we all need to recognize that um, kind of viewing a black male 17 year old as an adult uh, is also racist. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of aging, aging black children is a racist phenomenon. Um, black female. Um, right, exactly. Um, and so, it, when she said that, it was it was really powerful. That didn't happen. I mean, she was able to uh, kind of control that that environment a little bit, but by the skin of her teeth. I mean, that is a she she got lucky. I I don't know. I wouldn't. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to take that risk as a as a survivor. So having that happen, how was it then to say to you know these people who come to you for help? well, we're working very closely with law enforcement for this fatality report. How do you reconcile that? There are so many things that, that we do have to reconcile. Like also, especially with COVID, our, the, the system takes so long. Like we haven't had a jury trial in Tarrant County since like April. <laughs> like, I mean, um, so we're, we're like nine months in at this point of no jury trials. And so a system that was already backlogged and already taking forever is, is now taking longer. And we have survivors all the time who say to us, um, you know, I, I was cooperative, which I, I hate the use of that word in the, in the you know, criminal district attorney's vernacular. Uh, I don't know how to say it differently. <laughs> so we're, we're trying, um, but so, it's yeah. hard. So we have survivors who say, I, you know, I was, I was working with the DA, but like now my case was 18 months ago. And like, I just, I don't want anything to do with this person. Like, I don't want to see him necessarily rot in jail for forever. I just don't want him in my life. Um, and, and, and they're also doing the thing that is safest for them, whether that's safest physically or safest uh, mentally. Um, survivors do the thing that is safest for them. So it, if it protects their psyche to not deal with this anymore, we have to be okay with that. Like, um, 
And if that's disappointing to the people who work in the system, then they should probably work on changing the system to um, accommodate a survivor uh, in a better way. I always say there is there is no more of a traumatic environment than the courtroom. I mean, that is like the least trauma-informed place that a survivor can go. And the idea that we continue to ask them to do that um, for the sake of holding offenders accountable. And I understand that piece, but um, that definitely needs some reform. It sounds like what you're getting at is, you know, our definition of a culture of like what accountability looks like maybe isn't what justice to survivors might feel like. We don't use the term justice uh, here. <laughs> as far as like the, from the advocate perspective, we call it the legal system. Um, I love that. <laughs> I would argue that, that our survivors don't feel like they've gotten any justice, you know, in many parts of their life, including including the the system. So uh, it's the it's the legal system, uh, and and although I will say that the attempt to achieve justice is still definitely a goal of, of advocates, um, but it's kind of it reminds me of. Um, when we used to talk about the cycle of violence. Uh, and we do have a lot of survivors who can relate to that, that cycle, this, this honeymoon phase, uh, the tension building phase, and then an incident, um, and that being in a cycle, right. Um, but, but you do have a lot of survivors who are like, yeah, I can't relate to that because I don't really remember a honeymoon phase. Like, what are you literally talking about when you're talking about this like courtship that that never happened to me. Um, and I think that's how they feel about the, ju the justice system. It's uh, justice for who? Okay, I have to ask you, I wasn't going to because it's a longer conversation we can't cover today in our time, but mm, your services for offenders. Are you someone who believes that offenders can be reformed and having them go through like therapy and counseling is, an appropriate form of accountability for them? I feel like it's basically two questions. Like, do we feel like offenders were reformation is possible? And um, do we think that that's enough as far as accountability is concerned? Um, I'm gonna start with the second question. So yeah. uh, it's not, that's not enough. It's not, you know, um, the goal of the our offender programming is to take violence off the table. That's it. We're not teaching you how to communicate better with your partner. We're not teaching, we're not uh, putting you in, you know, uh, putting you in jail for a certain amount of time, punishing you in some sort of a way. Um, we're not teaching, you know, we're not talking about your trauma as a child that, you know, where you had observational learning, where your parents were in a violent relationship, and that's the only way that you've ever uh, learned how to interact with women. You know, we don't, but it's none of those things. <laughs> it's, it's teaching violence, it's taking violence off the table. Um, and in our world, that's the goal, right? Um, so I don't, do I feel like that's enough? No, absolutely not. But I have 27 weeks with these guys and the goal is to take violence off the table and we're going to do that thing. Um, because if they're not in a, if they're, if they're no longer in the relationship that wound them into this situation in the first place, they're probably going to have a relationship in the future. Uh, so let's prevent violence 
for, for those relationships. Um, now, do I believe reformation is possible? I believe that they can take violence off the table. I believe it is a choice that they're making. Um, everybody has choices and um, they need to take responsibility for those choices. And I, I do think that that happens. Um, do I think that these people become like upstanding citizens <laughs> in our community? I, I don't know that I can remark on that, but, um, but I do know that they, um, they're able with a coordinated community response. You can't have an offender program where, where the other parts of your community aren't working for the, you know, on the same train going in the same direction. Like if you have an, an offender program in isolation, it's probably not gonna be successful because PD is not gonna do what they have to do on scene to hold those guys accountable. Um, your district attorney's office isn't gonna prosecute these cases uh, because it's a lot of work uh, and they're not always winnable. Um, your, your probation isn't gonna uh, observe these guys the way that they should, right? Um, so if, if the advocate who's providing the offender programming is the only player, I, I suspect that, that it will be ineffective. Fair enough. Okay, let's get back to the reports. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Yeah, yeah. Looking at the results that came, um, it was the end of October, correct? Or the beginning of October? October. It was the beginning of, beginning of October. What did that tell you about, I guess, the state of domestic violence locally? And what did it tell you about things that you can do going forward as we kind of sludge through more of this pandemic? Well, okay. So we, um, this, I think the history is important here. So in 2016, our community, our county had a particularly awful year as far as uh, IP homicides go. We had 16 that year. Um, so we had 16 homicides in 2016. And, you know, that was our worst year kind of on record that, 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 uh, that we had seen. And so we decided in 2017, in February of 2017, we uh, started a pilot program uh, that's a model out of Massachusetts called High Risk Team. Okay. And the goal of High Risk Teams is to and domestic violence homicide. So the, the specific goal is to have zero homicides in a 12 month span. And so um, we, we implemented a pilot of that model. Our community is very large. Um, it's, it's, it's very sprawling. Um, it's Texas, everything bigger in Texas. <laughs> there is truth to that. Um, and so we have urban areas in our community. We have uh, suburban areas, and we have some quite rural parts of our county as well. So it's, you're dealing with a lot. Um, so we did this pilot. In 2017, we were able to get that number, that homicide number, down to 12. So um, it was a little bit, little bit better than 2016 when we had 16. In 2018, our number was eight. So we had cut the number in half. As our program grew, we cut the number in half by 2018 and we sustained that. We didn't get any better, but we sustained that number of eight in 2019, which is the report that you've read. When we released our report, uh, and 2020 is not over yet, so we won't have the 2020 report until October of 2021, time to go over everything. We've already experienced just since March, since the pandemic response started in our community, we've experienced 17. Uh, IP homicide. Uh, we had a particularly disturbing case 
um, in Arlington early on, I want to say it was like in April or May, where uh, his partner, his wife, um, in their home, wrapped her up in a tarp, um, left her on their marital bed for two weeks. Um, then, then he drove to Temple, Texas, which is a couple hours away, um, had a suicide attempt in Temple, and in the midst of that suicide attempt, um, he confessed to his brother. Uh, his brother let local law enforcement know uh, that, that he, he thought this had happened. Um, what is uniquely COVID related in that case is that nobody asked where this woman was and you know, was checking on her because no one was going anywhere. So the norm is that like you're isolated from your friends and family. You're not going to church. You're not going to the grocery store. You're not dropping off your kid at daycare every day um, early on in, in, in the pandemic. And so no one, everyone kind of shifted their focus very internally uh, during that time. And so she could have, she could have been on that bed for weeks and weeks and weeks um, without anyone ever knowing. Um, and, and my fear is, we know about these 17 homicides. My fear is um, that, that we will have missing people um, when we all kind of come out of the woodwork here uh, over the next year or so. Your fatalities were going down historically. Do you think that the spike um, is due entirely to the pandemic lockdown? I, I don't see how it could be anything else. Um, you know, I, would, would we have been able, so we, we went six months without, without a homicide. We went from September to March uh, without an IP homicide. So we were well on our way to achieving our goal. And we had, we have, I don't think we've ever gone six months without one. Um, so we were really excited about where we were. Um, you know, domestic violence, happens because of power. It's, it's because one person um, believes they hold power in a relationship and they use that power to control the other person. Um, so it's, I, I'm not going to blame COVID for domestic violence homicides. Homicide is, is yeah. it is because of power. Yeah. Um, that said, that said, I think things uh, that happen environmentally can definitely be catalysts uh, and you know, we see that sometimes when you have someone who has an alcohol or drug problem, who is a domestic violence abuser. I think we, we want to blame the alcohol uh, for the abuse. That is not actually the case. The abuse is caused by power. Um, the alcohol just speeds it up <laughs> uh, or makes it bigger. Uh, and I think that that's what COVID did. Seeing how we're not out of the pandemic yet, what are your plans going forward to help Get this fatality rate back down because it was declining. So it seems like the work you were doing was effective. Working, right? Yeah, it was working. So there's how a few things. There are things we've done immediately. Um, so when we realized that we were climbing again, um, we looked at you know there are unintended consequences of something like um, the way that criminal justice works during a pandemic. So you know for us to put it, to put it really simply, and it, it's a complex issue but the Texas state prisons 
were taking fewer and fewer inmates from county jails um, because they didn't want these like COVID spreads throughout the prisons, right? Um, so that meant that the county jails weren't able to transfer, you know, people to Huntsville, which is where our big state prison is. Um, and then they didn't want the county jails to fill up. So we were holding, we hold fewer and fewer offenders pre-trial. Um, and you have tools pre-trial like GPS monitoring um, that help us to, to, to keep an eye on these guys. Uh, GPS monitoring is not a, it's not a, um, it's not like an electric fence that we use for puppies. You know, it is, uh, it, it documents something when it happens. So it doesn't stop someone from going into a restricted zone. What it does is it gives us evidence when they do that thing that they're not supposed to do. Um, that doesn't really protect a survivor. Um, so, you know, literally. Uh, so anyway, so we, we, it's tough because I think as like an organization that believes in science in general, we believe that uh, our county judge did the right thing when, when he said, you know, we should have a stay at home order. We believe, you know, we believe that he, that we want to support that, you know, um, at the same time, we're like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Cause we have these offenders. Like, wait, what's happening? You know, I mean, it was very, um, there are unintended consequences to really good things, I think, or really um, beneficial things that, that keep our community health um, in check. And so uh, one of the things we did right away was we realized that there were going to be a lot of guys out on bond um, who would maybe not normally be out on bond. Um, and so we just we, we made a shift early on and said, um, let's only accept survivors onto our high-risk team caseload whose partner is out on bond. And that is a uniquely kind of COVID policy, right? Um, so we, we did that early on. Um, sadly, like, I mean, even all our hotline calls have gone up 30% during this time. Requests for shelter have gone up. Um, the people who are in shelter all score in the extreme danger category on the Jackie Campbell danger assessment. Um, so many of them, their partner is not being held somewhere. So we have a lot of guys who are actively pursuing and stalking the shelter. Um, so just, it, it, it's, a, it's a hard time. So we're, I feel, I still feel like we're kind of putting out fires. Um, one of the biggest things that we need to do that I wish we had in place prior to the pandemic is something that we call a vulnerability index, where we take all of the known survivors in our community, all of the known intimate partner offenders in our community, and we um, kind of put them through an algorithm where we rank, we're ranking their risk. So what their risk of homicide is, whether it's to commit a homicide or be a victim of a homicide by their partner, um, and then target the people who rise to the top, these relationships that rise to the top. We've had the idea of this for a while, um, but we, we did not start it. Uh, we started the idea. We, didn't, we don't have the data and the tools um, prior to the pandemic when I wish we did, because I think that would have helped with this, this homicide rate.
Hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is completely off topic, but it's sticking in my brain. Um, do you have abusers who actively like go to your shelters and harass or threaten the survivors? Um, I would say that we have abusers in, in non-pandemic times about once or twice a month or in six weeks, maybe twice in six weeks, we have an, we'll have an offender who will figure out where one of the shelters is and they will stalk the shelter, mostly that's in their car, like driving around the shelter. Oh, okay. But so, you never had one like come with a gun and threaten to shoot the place up or like commit public We've action. had, we had a bomb threat earlier this year. A bomb? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had a bomb threat. Um, we had an offender in the last two years, we had an offender who showed up at the shelter um, when he knew the survivor was going to her shift uh, as a waitress. And um, he kind of abducted her um, just out of camera, just out of our the side of our security camera. Um, and, and he beat her up pretty good. Um, and, and she came back to shelter and obviously we re reported that. Um, but, but that's, again, that's where you have to have a positive relationship, a working relationship with local law enforcement, because they're going to be able to increase patrol around the shelter. And you want, if you call 911 from the shelter, you want the response to be swift. Um, we, all, we also, within the last year, before pan the pandemic, we did have someone who was not a known offender, so... Uh, but it was a very weird situation and he got into um, one of our, our shelter facilities um, and was walking around, uh, did not have a weapon, but we were like, who are, <laughs> how did you get in? You know, like what, how did this happen? Um, and I guess one of the back doors to the shelter, um, these doors automatically lock from the outside. You need a key fob to come in. Um, but when whoever had come in, it didn't latch entirely. Okay. Uh, and so he walked around the building, tried every door uh, and found that one. The mental energy that could be put to good use if they stopped attacking survivors and started. Right, right, right. Oh my gosh. Wow. The, the soldier that I volunteered at never received a bomb threat, although the locals here do love using um, violent men will come to try and defund the shelter up here. So that's why I asked. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely like a not in my backyard situation, but I, neither one of our shelters is in a particularly nonviolent area. So, uh, you know, they're, they're both in residential areas. Yeah. It's um, interesting that you have the similar issues down there that we have up here with getting shelters funded, especially during mm -hmm. the Interesting enough. Okay, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Is there anything related to the report that we haven't talked about that you want to say before we sign off? I would say, you know, and your listeners know this already, but for the general public, we, we reviewed eight homicides in 2019. And in seven of the cases, the relationship had ended. So when we talk about why doesn't she just end the relationship? Well, she did, you know, seven eighths of the time and she wound up dead. So that is not to say that if you end your relationship, you will die. 
But that is to say that sometimes we have to believe survivors. We have to trust that they know what's best in their life. And sometimes leaving is not the safest thing they can do. Um, and I, I just think that that's, you know, we knew that because we, we know research, um, but now we know it because we've looked at literally eight cases that happened in our backyard. Um, and seven of them proved that research to be true. Thank you so much. Have um, a blah, English. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. That's it for now. Thank you for joining me in mid-December. So whatever you celebrate, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or if you're like me and you're like, meh, I'm happy for just, uh, you know, a little bit of downtime. That is totally awesome. And I appreciate you being here. To learn more about Safe Haven, please visit their website, safehaventc.org. The 2019 Fatality Report is listed on their site and check it out. It is really fascinating. If you want to reach out to us, please email thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok is still TikToking along, which is awesome. Haven't been it for a while, but I'm happy to have the option. We all have stories, and they deserve to be heard. See you next year. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone. <laughs>